This is the Greenfield Post on Triple M with uh, Will and MJ. And Will, we both went to Acme Theatres at Federation Square there during the week to see a brilliant new documentary, and it's a unique part of Australian history. Yeah, we did, MJ. It's called La Ride, and it stars Phil Cogan, the host of the US Amazing Race, and it touches on this story from the 1920s and this Australian team that went over to the Tour de France to partake in the most grueling sporting adventure I think the the world see, uh, the world had at that point in time in history. Yeah, absolutely. It was like a, almost an elimination style Tour de France where the idea was that everyone would start, but not everyone would finish. Exactly, like Battle Royal style. Yeah. Now, we are joined on the line now by the film's creator and, as you said, the host of The Amazing Race, Phil Cogan. Phil, thanks for joining us. Oh, no, it's, it's really good to talk to you, and I appreciate you taking 90 minutes out of your life to uh, sit down in a the theatre and behave yourselves. Um, I hope you didn't make any noise or disturb the neighbours <laughs> yeah. around you. Uh, but, no, I really do appreciate you taking 90 minutes out of your life to, to uh, experience this this story, uh, an amazing story about an incredible a group of amazing Australasians, one Kiwi, three Australians, who went halfway around the world to ride in the toughest race, I think, that's out there. And as you said, the Tour de France in the beginning, the guy who created the whole thing in the beginning, the, the, the uh, Henri de Grange is the guy's name, in 1903, his whole, you know, his whole thing was to create a race where Essentially, one rider would make it around a real Tour de France, like literally circumnavigate the country. And he tried to make it so hard that only one rider would make it back to France. And he did a pretty good job in 1928. <laughs> now, this isn't just your average doco. Can you let everyone know the extent that you went to to bring this story from 1928 to life? Yeah, so I found this book, and it was about the first New Zealander to ride in the Tour de France, and then... When I dug into the book, I realized that he was part of the first English-speaking team. So there's an amazing sportsman in Australia. Uh, his name was Sir Hubert Opperman. When Bradman was big, Opperman was big. I mean, they, these guys were like household names. He, was, he ended up being knighted for his achievements, world records up the wazoo. Mm. Um, he was a European Athlete of the Year one year, in, in, uh, in the, I think in 1928-29 most extraordinary athlete. And there was this New Zealander that would come over to Australia and ride in these big races. And Opperman had such respect for him. When he was putting together a, a team to go to ride in the Tour de France, he asked this New Zealander, Harry Watson, a very humble man. They used to call him the priest because he was kind of well-dressed and kind of tall and lanky. And then two other Australians, uh, Ernest Bainbridge and Percy Osborne, to make this team of four Australians. And they had one set of rollers, you know, which you use for training mm. on a ship for six weeks. They go on this boat to Europe, and then they were meant to hook up with six French riders and make up a standard team of ten. But when they got there, the French uh, riders were not available. The sponsors couldn't, you know, come through with the other riders. So now they were this complete underdog team of just four people racing against teams of ten, the best riders in the world. And the best riders in the world, Nicholas Franz and DeLuke, all these riders, they, they looked at this Australasian team like with their antiquated equipment at the time, big balloon sort of tires, and they thought, who the hell do these guys think they are coming from down under to race against us? We're, don't they know we're like the best riders in the world? Mm. And um, there was a warm-up race leading into the Tour de France, and, and Opperman decided, I'm going to show these guys that we are to be taken seriously. And... 
they tried to drop him. They, they, they tried to get rid of these guys. They couldn't get rid of them, and they realized, okay, <laughs> these guys are the real deal. They're here. They mean business. But it still didn't negate the fact that they were only a team of four against these teams of ten. So the press wrote them off and said there's no way they're going to be able to make it through the first few stages, but they did. And then they said they'll never be able to make it over the mountains, and particularly the death stage, because that knocks everybody out. And they, they survived. And then they started to win over the press. And, and the most amazing part of all of this and part that I love about this story is that they won over the French people because the French people had certainly not forgotten the sacrifices that the Anzacs made my relatives, your relatives, so many New Zealanders and Australians who went over to France to protect France from the Germans. So the public got behind this little underdog team and cheered them. It, you know, it got, got out on the street with Australian New Zealand flags to really motivate these guys to get them to the finish line. And because I couldn't sit down and interview these guys, they're gone. You know, we've lost them. I thought the only way to really communicate what it was that they went through and just how tough and tenacious these guys were was to put myself on a bike just like the bike they rode, one of these 85-year-old, well, it's now 85-year-old bicycle with no gears, marginal brakes, heavy steel bike that weighs twice, twice as much as a modern bike, and put myself on the same roads, on the same schedule, over the same mountains, and try to replicate as best I could what they went through and communicate that to the audience. Now, Phil, you have such a specific eye for detail in the in the documentary, and you've, like you said, you got the same bike, you went through the same paths as best you could. But how frustrating was it when you came up to a road that was no longer existed or was uh, no longer the same path? Was it really just frustrating in the production process? Yeah, I mean. W- <laughs> We almost had a bit of a mutiny on our hands after about five, six days because Ben and I, the guy that I convinced to ride with me, he's as tough as nails, this guy. Um, we trained really, really hard because we knew we were going to have days that would almost last 24 hours. As a matter of fact, the death stage that was over uh, almost 400 kilometers and uh, 20,000 vertical feet in one day, um, the winning time in 1928 was 18 and a half hours, and we it took us with filming and and even and riding on modern roads. They were on unsealed roads. It took us 23 and a half hours. Whoa! And you were um, up. You were up for that whole time, riding, yeah, we were riding up for nonstop. That whole time. Mm. But but the thing was, we trained for the the hardships of of this ride. What we didn't factor in until we got out there, and we realized that my dad who was driving the support vehicle, who's in his 70s, we're now asking him to drive a car for maybe, you know, 17 to 23 hours in a day at a really, really <laughs> slow speed. <laughs> That's not easy for anyone. That's not easy for anyone. So, And then the, the cameraman sitting on the back of a motorbike shooting mm-hmm. for 23 hours. And then the motorbike rider having to ride a motorbike crawling up these hills in the middle of the night. So... What we, what we really didn't factor in was, was the, the frustration levels that would come from everybody being so cranked and tired. And then, like you said, there were roads that they rode on that are now major highways that you cannot ride a bike on. So then you have to go off track and you have to ride on side roads and you have to find a different way. Mm. And then we were so adamant about sticking to the same miles and the same roads that when we ran into these 
blocks, basically where we couldn't like ride onto a highway. There's one point in the film where you see us following the road they were on, and it comes, it leads right onto a motorway, and you, mm. you're not allowed to have bikes <laughs> on a motorway. And then we accidentally ended up on a motor, motorway at one point, uh, and then the police pulled us over because we, we were not meant to be on a <laughs> motorway. So, yeah, it was it was unbelievably difficult, but um, we just felt that the only way to really communicate to the audience just how extraordinary, how extraordinary it was what these guys did was to put ourselves in the action to put ourselves in the story that's so funny about uh your your uh how riding with your partner ben how uh the support staff had to sit at 15 k's an hour for 24 hours it would have just like stuck in perpetual traffic it would have been a nightmare um oh, it was I, a nightmare yeah we, we, honestly it got to the point where you see that scene before the death stage and the and that expert Emil, amazing rider, mm. he said, Phil, you've got to leave at midnight. You have to leave at midnight because if you don't leave at midnight, you will not get through this, to the stage the next day uh, uh, before Dak. So if you want to finish by sunset the following night, you've got to leave now at midnight and ride through the night all through the day and then hopefully finish the stage before sunset. Well, we were so tired. We didn't get in that night until 10 o'clock from the previous stage. The idea oh. of that only having two hours rest and then rolling right into another stage called the death <laughs> stage, you know, I would have had people running. And so we, we got in at 10, we met with him, and then we still left at 4.30, and then we rolled out on our bikes about 5 in the morning. And we were still, you know, finishing at the next night at three in the morning or something yeah, two and hours it, doesn't sound like adequate preparation for the death stage no. <laughs> and no. it, would, it would be hard enough on, a, on with modern technology and modern bikes you're doing this on rusty old bikes from 1928 yeah not to, and let's not forget that i'm not i'm not as young as Sir hubert opperman or or harry watson and the guys i mean they were 24 25 <laughs> at the time yeah. we were like 46 and 47 you know it's like there's a there's a big difference <laughs> Um, out of interest, because you actually rode every kilometre, um, and you and you stuck to the schedule as close as you possibly could, given the the factors that stopped you from doing it. But how would you have actually gone in the nineteen twenty eight Tour de France? Oh, I would have got my I would have got it handed to me. I mean, <laughs> these guys were, you know, they were the elite athletes of the day. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not. I wasn't. I never would ever compare myself to these riders and no i would have been like i would have been against pros today so you know what got yeah. us through from beginning to end was was absolute just grit and determination if there's one thing that we had that we shared with them it was that we had grit and determination you know like giving up was not an option yeah. we certainly had that quality but as far as the quality of rider that they were we were you know we're, they're just in a completely different league from us and um and you know, no, we're never going to compare ourselves. I mean, this guy, Sir Hubert Opperman. I mean, you you have a look at his record and how many world records he had. Um, he was a phenom. I mean, he you know yeah. that a rider like that comes along like like Bradman. You know, comes along once in a lifetime, uh, or in a, in a you know every hundred years you'll get an athlete like the caliber of these guys. So no, we 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 got to the end because of grit and determination. Um, not because of our, uh, you know, elite cycling ability, that's for sure. 
Now, the ride is currently showing at Acme Theatre at Fed Square. It's going that well that they've extended the run there. Tickets are available at acme.net.au. Get in quick because they are selling very, very quick. And as Will and I can say, it was an absolute brilliant movie. Now, Phil, uh, people might know you as host of The Amazing Race. Do you mind sticking around and we can have a quick chat? Because I think it could be that Phil could have the best job in the world. Oh, 100%. I might have, and and let me just before we stop talking about the ride, can mm. I just say for those people who are not in Melbourne, um, mm. and who listen to you guys, anybody anywhere in Australia can request a screening of the ride in their local theatre. All you have to do is to go to film, uh, demandfilm dot com or dot au, I guess it would be, mm-hmm. and look for the ride, and you can request a screening. There's no uh, financial risk to requesting a screening. If the theater sells to 60%, then the screening goes ahead. And as a matter of fact, they even let you take 5% of the box office to donate to your favorite charity. Oh, brilliant. So a, a lot of, a lot of uh, we've, and it's been, the, the film has been selling out all over the country in Perth and Sydney and all over because it allows people to have a screening wherever they are in Australia, again, with no risk. And you can ask your mates to come over and they'll set you up with a nice little theater and, you get to watch it on the big screen. Oh, that's brilliant. For cycling and non-cycling fans alike, mm. I'll definitely do that. Phil's going to stick around. We'll be back with him um, after this. We're chatting with Phil Cogan, who is a documentary maker, Will. Yep. And the host of The Amazing Race, which is a, a juggernaut of a television series that's been running since 2001. I think it's been 21 seasons now, Phil? Uh, well, how good were you uh, at school with math? <laughs> not not <laughs> very well. I was going to say, not very, apparently. <laughs> yeah, your margin, your margin of error is pretty bad. Mate. <laughs> but, um, uh, no, how about 29? Oh, 29? 29 seasons. That is yeah. a powerhouse. What does your passport yeah. look like now, Phil, after 29 well, seasons? I, first of all, I've got more than one, and I, and I have old ones that fill up a shoebox. <laughs> um, so, no, I've got a lot of them. Um, you know, I... I uh, I always get annoyed when I go home because in New Zealand they don't uh, they don't stamp the, my passport anymore. You know, <laughs> the way that I, I always I always love having stamps. You know, but not everybody is stamping right now. Yeah. But yeah, no, I've I've uh, definitely clocked clocked up a few miles over the years. Have you worked out how many countries you've actually been to over those twenty nine seasons? Well, I started working as you said in uh, on Amazing Race in two thousand and one, and at that stage I'd been to sixty countries with my you know, with my work. Oh. Um, and because I started traveling very early with my parents, but, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm gosh, well over a hundred. Uh, I have to do an accurate count, but I'm thinking I'm close to like maybe 120, something like that. Gee whiz. It's such an amazing show. And it's actually a miracle that you can actually put it together because you've got so many ca- uh, cars going around and production crews trying to film all this content. Was there, has there been like a biggest balls up that you've seen to date <laughs> Where just everything went wrong? Oh, we've had plenty of balls ups. Um, <laughs> we've we've had teams that have just like literally got lost in a desert, and we just can't, you know, like we have no idea where they are except that we know that they're on a camel. We've had um, <laughs> yeah, we've had we've had to like delay production because teams just get so badly lost. Like they almost do everything that you shouldn't do to. to like if you were going to write out a plan for how to get somebody lost, they actually. Uh, they make that plan look like child's play. You know, I mean, they are really good at getting lost. So, um, you know, the, the thing about it is, 
you just never know how the real world is going to factor into you planning this big logistical game show, basically. Yeah. And and so you're sitting on a plane and you think you know you'll be able to get out on time, and then you find out that there's some bolts missing from the wheel, and this happened mm. to us in Italy, and now everybody has to get off the off the plane. It's the last flight of the night. The teams are on a different plane, so they're now. There was one stage where we were lying on the floor, the cold floor of an Italian uh, airport waiting for the earliest flight the next morning and knowing that the teams had actually raced ahead and we were all left behind, all the production basically, except for the this, this satellite crew that was up ahead. Mm. We were we were behind the teams, the whole production. So they'd, so, they'd arrive at the mat and you wouldn't be there? Well, we've had, we've had some interesting scenarios where uh, I've, I've always managed to make it to the mat, but sometimes by the skin of my teeth, like <laughs> when I was held at uh, immigration in Ukraine, few years ago and and uh i got held overnight at the airport in a in a uh holding area and then i finally got out just in time to be able to rush to the mat to welcome i think that was season 10 mm. to welcome uh the teams to the mat i literally just got there maybe a couple minutes before <laughs> the first team r- ran in and then we were in azerbaijan once and and uh uh and i literally ran out of my car across two rows of traffic, yeah. <laughs> raced past uh, Dave and Rachel, who had taken the fast forward, and, <laughs> and sprinted past them, sprinted up to the mat, met the greeter. The cameraman I was with, uh, I dropped him because he was carrying his equipment and he was, like, still behind them. And, and Dave and Rachel arrived at the mat, and, and uh, we only had one camera at the mat because I'd raced ahead of my camera, but I, I was determined to get to the mat before them. <laughs> <laughs> You're racing the races. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. One of the most- well, a lot of people don't realize that there's 12, there's, we shoot 12 shows mm. in 21 days. So from start to finish, it's 21 days. Yeah, so from start to finish, it's 21 mm. days, upwards of, you know, 80 uh, 82, I think the most we've ever had is like mm. 120,000 kilometers in 21 days. And you're visiting, say, you know, a dozen countries. You're going to four or five continents, mm. um, how many ever cities, you know, dozens of cities. And, and so the logistics of all of that, it happens so quickly that sometimes when you come back, it takes you a while to sort of like regroup. And, and sort of process exactly mm. what has happened to you because it's it's all so much. It's like it's like sensory overload in such a short amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most famous clips from the Amazing Race in the twenty nine seasons is um, one of the teams who are using a catapult fill, and they oh, and yeah, they yeah. pull a watermelon down and it misfires oh. and she gets hit straight in the head. Did she die from that? Or was <laughs> yeah, well, listen, no joke. I mean, afterwards we we sort of realized that um, you know there was there was always a good chance that if that watermelon had hit her a certain way, it could have really taken her head off. Um, (laughs) That was like the freakiest thing ever. She's using like this giant slingshot and cat giant catapult. And she's, she's got this leather piece around the watermelon and somehow manages to hold the watermelon and, and pull this thing back in such a way that the watermelon goes out full force. And instead of releasing and firing off into the distance, it somehow turns, does a complete um, retract, and comes right back and hits her fair smack in the face. And it went viral into the millions like in an instant. Oh, because it's one of the funniest videos I think I've ever seen. <laughs> thank, God, thank God she's okay. That's yeah, I assume she's okay. Yeah, well, let's, let's start with that. Yeah. We wouldn't be laughing. Yeah. No. But th- I assume there's been a few incidents like that where, where you've genuinely worried for the, the health of 
some of the races? To be honest with you, I don't worry about the racers when they're uh, – I don't worry about them when they're doing things that we set up because we're so careful about how and, you know, how we do things. What I worry about is when they get into a cab in a foreign country yeah. or, you know, things that are out of our control because everything we do is, is thoroughly tested over and over and over again. We thoroughly test things. You know, of course, you have little anomalies like the watermelon thing. I mean, who would have <laughs> ever guessed? How many times you know, did you test the watermelon yeah. catapult? <laughs> oh, so many, so many times. Uh, but, yeah, no, who? I mean, it was such a freaky thing. But, um, yeah, no, generally, I, th- that's the time that I worry. I worry when they get into a cab and the cab is like, driving up the road the wrong way or mm. or, or or sometimes i worry about them driving because mm. you know the, the the camera operators are there to adjudicate their speed and to make sure that they drive safely and they have the power to say hey listen you're not driving safely i don't want you to drive or you know slow uh-huh. down or you know change your behavior focus you know whatever but um yeah that's that's the time that i worry i don't really worry about them when they're doing things that we do, there's a lot of perceived danger. You know, they're they're doing a tightrope walk or something over a big canyon, and there's a big thousand foot drop. But that's you know, I, I worry less about that because we're so strict with safety than yeah. I do about them getting in some crazy cab where the wheels are about to fall off. <laughs> yeah. Now you've been over a hundred countries, Phil. More travel than anyone we've probably ever talked to. Any country where you'd never go again? I don't really have a desire to go back to Madagascar, and that's just because. <laughs> Really? I saw I saw a, a dead camel at a at a market, and I just Ooh. it just is etched in my brain, and mm. I can't get it out of my head. Um, just the head, and that was yeah. all. Oh no! Um, and the, but, were, um, were the humps there as well? <laughs> I know I don't know what they do with the humps. That's a good question. I did I like Black after market. I saw that I was really trying to like put my blinders on and just get through the market without looking too closely at what exactly I was looking at. <laughs> but uh, you know, I I actually really get a kick out of going to new and different places. Um, I, I, um, you know, there's some obvious countries in the world I don't want to go to, but the, yeah. the good news is that there's still a lot of really cool places for us to travel to that are, are still safe to get to. Thank goodness. We're chatting with Phil Kogan, the host of The Amazing Race and documentary maker. LaRide is currently showing at Acme Theatre and Fed Square. Tickets at acme.net.au. Get in quick. And Phil, where can people go to book a screening of the movie? So it's um, demandfilm.au. So if you just put, um, I guess if you just go to Google and you put LaRide, L-E, and then R-I-D-E, and you go demand film, you'll see, I can send you guys a link so you can put it up on your website, but it's, it's, it's really that simple. You'll, you, you, you see the film, you, there's a link there for the film, and you just say you want to request a screening wherever you are. And Robbie McEwen, who's a great Australian cyclist, is, mm-hmm. Um, he's going to be hosting uh, a screening and a lot of cycling clubs and a lot of Francophiles, people who love, you know, scenery in Europe and that sort of thing. They, they want to see it because the film's not just for cyclists. It's, it's, it's just a great, or people like history buffs. I've got a guy from the Australian uh, museum who's hosting uh, a screening in, in um, Canberra. Um, so it, it, it's a great piece of Australian history and, but anybody can request the screening anywhere. So we'll be, We'll continue to do them all over the country, and I'm pleased to report that they're they're just they've just been selling out everywhere. Every screening so far is sold out. Oh, that's brilliant news, Phil. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Greenfield Post on Triple M. Yeah, no, listen, I really appreciate you taking an interest, and again, thank you for sitting down, and taking uh, 90 minutes out of your life to to uh, watch the film.
It was five years of blood, sweat, and tears, literally. 